Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our January 20th, 2011 edition of the show. 4.08 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, I have a couple of quick reminders for you. First of all, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. Sometimes we've been trained for so long to think about something a certain way that when we're presented with the fact that that isn't how it's always been or how it should be, it seems odd. Such is the case with the notion of the commons. Once it's been brought back up from the memory hole, we're not sure. Then when we've had some time to refamiliarize ourselves, it seems self-evident. After we process the anger over what's been stolen from us, we want to get active. What exactly am I talking about here? Well, our special guest today will make this clear. He is Jay Waljasper, and he has a new book called All That We Share, A Field Guide to the Commons. Jay is a fellow at and editor for On the Commons and the former longtime editor of Utney Reader. He is the author of The Great Neighborhood Book and the co-author of Visionaries, People and Ideas to Change Your Life. Jay Waljasper, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Hey, it's great to have you. Uh, all the way yeah. from Minnesota, <laughs> we were talking all about right, Minnesota, that. Minnesota, <laughs> we're distinctly un-Southern California weather here. Uh, our winters are not as cold as they used to be, but today I think the, the thermometer is going to uh, bottom out at about 15 below with a wind chill that you don't even want to know about. <laughs> wow. So I think, think we've got about a 70-degree differential <laughs> between our two Not locations. much surfing going on here today. <laughs> no, no, but uh, wow. Yeah, I always say in California we don't, we don't have weather. <laughs> it's, just, it's just all the yeah, same. So. Yeah, okay, well, um, we... Um, we mentioned the commons a fair amount in this show, but overall it's a term Good. that's been sort of flush down that memory hole, and, and that's the problem. In order to reclaim it, we have to know what it is. So for those who don't know, let, let's define what is the commons. Well, in doing this book, I tried to title it with what I thought was the most succinct definition of the commons I could come up with, and I came up with all that we share. Um, it's really all that we share and all the various ways we share them. But the commons are things that really do, essentially, belong to all of us. You know, the sky, the air, the water, um, you know, the national parks, those are all commons that are pretty easy to think about. But if you take the next step into sort of commons that aren't just natural gifts, but commons that are sort of created by human ingenuity, then suddenly you have a lot of scientific knowledge is actually the commons. Most of it should be. Uh, the Internet itself is a commons. That's one reason why it's thrived is that it, it doesn't have any owners. There's no one sort of setting the rules, and simply people uh, are able to use their own creativity and to share it with one another. Really, any process that involves cooperation, sharing, or collaboration really operates as a commons. And uh, for the Internet, what some people maybe don't understand is that that is something that was developed over some time and with uh, a lot of government uh, 
yes. intervention or uh, <laughs> government involvement the in the internet because <laughs> it was done with our tax money through the actually a lot through the Defense Department when they created something called Arapanet. And I actually, when I was a kid, I was playing games on Arapanet back in the 1970s. I had no idea what it would become. It was just sort of a way to play pong. <laughs> pong. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that one. So, and the now we have this issue that's been with us for the last few years, and that's the issue of of net neutrality and whether or not yes. we should have that. And can you explain that to us and how that relates to the notion of the internet as the commons? Yeah, net neutrality is really, you know, when the Internet first came out, people used a commons metaphor for it. They said it's kind of the uh, freeway system uh, for information, and which meant that everyone could use the uh, entrance ramps. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But what's happening is a notion called net neutrality, which is really the, the notion that the Internet belongs to all of us and we should all have equal access to it and not be particularly, you know, certainly, um, you know, and, you know, not create first, second, and third class status on the Internet. But a lot of the telecommunications companies want to do precisely that. They want to give privilege and extra special access to people that pay more money that they make more money from, you know, kind of like flying first class on an airplane. And yet, because the Internet, I think, has thrived because of its accessibility, I think this is a huge mistake. It's unfair, and I think it's actually a detriment to the continued growth and flourishing of the medium itself. It, then there's this issue with the internet and with so many other things in uh, the last uh, half century of this. I, I don't know. I, I and I think and other people use this term, this sort of like the cult of privatization, and that this this is a great thing. And if we privatize things and we let somebody own it they'll do everything they can to make it great, and this will be good for everybody. And we have example after example of how that is not the case. And that, uh, So could you explain a little bit about how that notion came to be and, and give us some evidence for how that is not the case? Yeah, well, there's a famous essay that was written in the late 1960s called The Tragedy of the Commons. And they used the metaphor of grazing land to say that if... Um, if grazing land is owned communally rather than privately, it will inevitably be destroyed because people will be greedy and they'll put too many sheep out or too many cows out or whatever is grazing there. Uh, and uh, they'll destroy the land. They'll be destroyed for everybody. So the, um, the conclusion of that is that for something to be efficient, effective, and uh, environmentally responsible, it needs to be privately owned. Um, that actually, that was never, there was no scientific evidence given for that theory in this article. It was more of a parable. But it's become the common wisdom to a lot of people. And, and so we've seen the privatization of everything from prisons to uh, hospitals and to actually now roadways and, and the Internet itself. And it's kind of been proven over and over that it doesn't work. It doesn't work the way that it's promised. You know, Atlanta privatized their municipal water supply, and the results were really bad. I mean, you know, the prices went up, the quality of the water went down, because when something is a public service, then the most important thing is providing that service to people. When, um, when something that important becomes a for-profit enterprise, then the most important thing is making profits, and the idea of getting the drinking water to people only becomes secondary. Yeah, there, there's a great uh, quote in, in your book uh, by uh, Bill McKibben in the, uh, is in the foreword, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the preface, or, and uh, <laughs> about that, 
Actually, privatization has worked quite well for a very small <laughs> group <Yeah>. of people. <laughs> no, no, it really is. I mean, it, it's, you know, just the story of American life in the last quarter of the 20th century and the, the first 10 years of this century has just simply been that the rich have been getting richer. And, and you know, there's just a point where that, um, you know, where just people are going to say enough is enough, but we haven't quite reached that point yet. But the commons is really, you know, we're all commoners. Uh, we're all people that share in the commons, that depend upon the commons, and that the commons is a great source of wealth. You know, it's a source of wealth that really belongs to all of us. And so it's, you know, I'm just patient and hoping that people kind of come to realize that there's just a lot of things in our culture that are done better, done more efficiently, and certainly done more equitably when, when we do them together than rather than we do them all each in our own private sphere. Well, and I think we just have to keep talking about this, you and I talking here or whoever else you're yeah. uh, being interviewed by and just putting that word out there, the commons. And, you know, I'd like to see people doing freeway blogging and everything else and just <laughs> getting that out there, the commons, the commons. So people are asking, what yeah. does that mean? So could we talk a little bit about that historically, how that word sure. came into place? And this goes back to English law and all of that. Uh, yeah, talk about that a little. Yeah, the the original commons that most people are aware of. I mean, some people think of the Boston Commons. Uh, is the it was the commons was um, kind of communally owned land in England in the medieval era. And in fact, you know, we hear a lot about the Magna Carta as being one of the founding documents of Western democracy. But actually, a great deal of the Magna Carta was about apportioning the rights for peasants and, you know, widows and orphans and peasants and, um, you know, other people with, who weren't rich, uh, to have the right to gather firewood, to graze their animals there, to gather thatch for their houses. And, in fact, at some point, uh, beginning, I think, in about the 16th, maybe the 15th century, um, the lords and ladies of England decided that they wanted to privatize the commons, you know, not unlike the privatization that's happening in throughout the United States today. And they basically just... They did what's called enclose the commons. And uh, the, the peasants, who once were able to thrive because they were able to sort of live off the bounty of the commons, a lot of them, you know, were, were, were plunged into poverty. And that was really actually the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, they would not have found the willing workers to go into the satanic mills of Manchester and Birmingham and Leeds uh, had those people not really essentially been driven off the land by the enclosure of the commons. So that phrase has been kind of revived as... Uh, sort of a metaphor for the things that really do belong to all of us. Wasn't this the uh, issue with the uh, uh, the Irish uh, potato famine and the, the Irish, their, their horrible state they were living in at that time because they had no land that they could just use to graze yeah, animals yeah. or collect firewood? It was just they were allowed none of that. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, you know, the commons is... Uh, that kind of commons, that sort of communal lands, is it's not uncommon around the world today. Um, you know, indigenous people and peasant cultures really throughout the developing world still depend on the commons for their livelihood. Um, and one of the interesting things, there was a woman, a great champion of the commons, won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2009. Her name is Eleanor Ostrom, and she teaches at Indiana University. Uh, and a lot of her research was really looking at these real-life existing commons uh, throughout the world. She actually, one of, her, one of her case studies was Los Angeles, where she grew up. Uh, Kenya, Guatemala, Switzerland, Nepal, and... Um, 
and other places around the world. And she studied the commons and found that over and over and over, when there is kind of communally owned land, that people don't destroy it. There is not a tragedy of the commons because people are not stupid. They're not going to completely degrade and debase this thing, which is part of their economic livelihood. So they come up with systems of governance. Now, sometimes the governance takes the form of laws enforced by government. Sometimes it just becomes customs enforced by the community or just a set of rules. But they make sure to take care of that commons so that it's there for them and there for succeeding generations. And that's what we need to focus on here in the United States is to say, now, how can we preserve these commons? How can we promote them? How can we protect them? And how can we make sure that they're there for our kids and, in fact, for as the a lot of Native Americans say, for seven generations down the line. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, uh, speaking today with Jay Wall Jasper, and we're talking about his book, All That We Share, A Field Guide to the Commons. Also says on the cover of the book, How to Save the Economy, the Environment, the Internet, Democracy, Our Communities, and Everything Else that Belongs to All of Us. Uh, in a certain sense, that sounds a, a bit uh, hyperbolic, but, but I tend to agree that, that reintroducing and reintegrating this one concept, the commons, would have a beneficial effect on just about every crisis that threatens our current society. Could you give us a couple examples, Jay? Uh, oh, sure. I mean, and I, I did this book with an organization called On the Commons, um, and we have a website that has a lot of information about the commons. It's onthecommons.org, and you can actually order the book and download the first chapter for free. But our organization stresses the idea of commons-based solutions, that when you discover the commons, when you realize how the commons works, that suddenly opens the door for many kind of different kinds of thinking about some of our social problems. And I'm just kind of flip through the book, and I'll just give you a few examples. Examples, but um, one example is that um, the sky, the atmosphere, is actually a commons. It belongs to all of us. Um, so one of the best ways that to really curtail global warming emissions is to operate on the basis that we all own the sky. And so when you create these trading schemes where companies buy permits to be able to continue to pollute, and of course those permits get more expensive and they have less and less opportunity to pollute in the future. Um, you know the revenues under the cap-and-trade idea that was proposed in Congress by Lieberman, Carey, and Graham, uh, the corporations would keep that money. You know, they would trade it among themselves. But the cap-and-dividend idea says, hey, wait a minute, we are the owners of the sky, so those revenues should come to us. Mm-hmm. And, of course, well, the great thing about this plan is that it's very, you know, it's going to cost curtailing global warming is going to be very expensive for people in their home energy bills. And so if they get this dividend, then suddenly they're going to be less opposed to putting in the kind of stringent pollution controls that way because they'll have a little dividend to help pay the bills. Um, so that's one example of what we call a commons-based solution. Um, just another example, and this is something um, from Dayton, Ohio, because um, uh, the book is full of case studies and examples and success stories. And... Uh, yeah, I really wanted it to be from kind of all across America, all across the world. In Dayton, Ohio, um, there was the public bus system came up with this brilliant idea where they created this really wonderful downtown plaza that had shops around it, had services that you needed, had a, a big, um, you know, like an airport, you know, your bus is coming in five minutes, your bus is coming in ten minutes. It was just a very pleasant place. It's almost, it almost looks like, like kind of a park. Um, and, and transit ridership was boosted because, you know, the idea is that bus riders should have a great place, a great public space, and so that they feel good about 
about riding the bus. I mean, so that something that made a real difference in in the city of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, <clears throat> so getting back to the example with the, the the sky, if I understand this right, it's like just by being born a uh, human being or, or any mammal for that matter uh, any animal plant you are a part owner of the sky and therefore yeah. if somebody is doing something to uh, lessen the uh, the viability of that they need to pay you for what they've done exactly exactly and and i like to to, to sort of joke and say hey we all have a rich uncle <laughs> um, called the commons, and we're all we all have a great inheritance from it. We have many valuable assets from parkland to social programs like Social Security and Medicare uh, to just simply having you know great public spaces in our communities that really belong to all of us. It's this great thing that really enriches our lives. You know, the 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 good life does not just simply come to us by how much money we can make and how much stuff we can buy. The good life is really also a function of just having a rich commons that we can all use. But unfortunately, the commons is very threatened today. You know, there's privatization that's happening, and people kind of say, hey, you know, we don't need this public, you know, public service. Let's, uh, let me sell this stuff. Uh, another way that the commons um, is taken away from us is just simply through neglect. You know, the the things that we all own together, public um, services and public places, you know, they're not taken care of well during, you know, sometimes during budget crises like so many cities are facing today. And pretty soon, this place that we were once all proud of, you know, looks kind of crummy. And it's, you know, the grass is overgrown, the paint is chipping off, uh, you know, the library is only open 15 hours a week, you know, the rec center... Um, you know, the, the hoops have fallen off the baskets, and pretty soon we kind of lose the commons just through, um, through inattention. Well, I, I can give you a personal example. I, uh, in Here in California, our, our California state park system was just something that is wonderful. I mean, it's still nice, but it's, just, it's not what it used to be. I, I just remember as, as a child in the 70s going to these parks, and they were just kept up so nicely. And, and now, because of, like you said, things like budget crises, it's, uh, staff has been cut back. Uh, some of the things have been privatized in the parks, and you can just uh, – it just – not what they used to be. Just the, they're not open as many hours, and uh, it's. Uh, but I remember when it was taken care of as a real commons, and we were using our tax money to create this thing that everybody had access to. It was just a absolutely wonderful uh, system. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's good news in the commons. I want to tell people right now too is that there's a beginning. It's in the early stages, but there's actually kind of a commons movement that's emerging of people just saying, "Hey, you know, we can achieve more together than we can achieve everybody kind of working things kind of privately in a selfish way." And the 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 silver lining, perhaps, of the kind of the uh, great economic collapse of the last couple of years is that more and more people have realized that they really do need 
these shared resources. You know, at one point they could say, oh, who cares that the rec center's closed? You know, I'll just join the private club. Or, hey, I have Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Why do I care about the library? But suddenly, you know, when they've lost their job or they're not getting any pay raises anymore and they see people around them also, everyone else is sort of struggling economically, then suddenly these things that we took for granted, maybe thought we didn't really need anymore, suddenly the commons is playing a more important role in people just being able to, um, you know, get ahead in their lives and uh, and enjoy their lives. And so I think there's a, a rediscovery of the commons that's happening. And, and a lot of that I was able to capture in the pages of this book. I mean, the book isn't just some abstract theorizing about political science. Um, there are just a lot of stories of commoners, you know, people that are doing great work for the commons, stories of what people have done in their communities, what people have done around the world. And, and uh the idea is to give people some real practical information about how the commons can make a difference in their lives and what they can do to help the commons um, be there for for um, themselves and future generations. Yes, and that book is All That We Share, A Field Guide to the Commons. And, yeah, you uh, I want to get into it a little bit later in the show. Uh, you, you talk about you have lists of things that people can do to spark a commons revo- uh, revolution and some words and we'll get into that uh, um as we uh, get later into the show um y- you mentioned the uh economic meltdown of 2008 and it's generally understood that you know this was the result of financial institutions acting irresponsibly and the bailout was necessitated by the fact that these corporate banks were too big to fail how might we apply the the commons to this in, in a sense of preventing yeah. something like that from happening in the first place and uh, dealing with issues like banks being too big to fail? Yeah. Well, what's so sadly ironic is that we went through that once before in our country, and we came up with a good system to prevent it, and it prevented it for many, many, many years. And that was during the 1930s. You know, banks failed right and left, and... Uh, you know, even the bankers themselves were calling for the government to come in and create regulations to um, steady the industry and allow everybody to be able to, uh, um, you know, stay in business and, and uh, to protect our communities and protect people's savings. Um, so these regulations were put in. They worked very, very well. But then in the 1990s, uh, during the Clinton administration, actually, um, just the, the greed uh, on the part of certain people said, you know, take these regulations off. We don't need them anymore. They're old-fashioned, and, you know, we can do better, you, you know, unleashing our own, um, you know, competitive spirit. And it didn't take long before the whole thing came crashing down, and we footed, you know, an $800 billion bill, um, you know, for the whole thing. I mean, it's just a, a mess. And uh, that was just clearly a case of letting go of the, the sensible commons for some promise of uh, unchecked wealth, and it didn't work very well, did it? Um, so actually, and then big, you know, big political debate right now is the role of government. You know, and the Tea Party would have it that there's absolutely, you know, government can do nothing right. And uh, actually, there's just a lot of things that are done more effectively and efficiently by government itself. I wouldn't particularly want to have to uh, buy or build my own water filtration system to have clean water coming to the house. I'm really glad that I don't have to own part of a snow plow to plow the street in front of my house. Just logically, there's just a lot of things that when handled 
as a we rather than as a, a me makes a lot of sense. And, and that's the role that government plays, although the commons is not synonymous with government. I mean, there's a lot of levels of the commons that actually happen through citizens' initiatives, through nonprofit organizations, and, um, and other things like that, too. So the commons um, envelops both government services and government action, um, the civic sector, and even some private businesses essentially operate as commons. I'm thinking of like your local coffee shop, mm-hmm. um, your local tavern, your cafe, you know, a bookstore, you know, even churches and synagogues and things like that. You know, technically they are privately owned. However, they function very, very much as public spaces. And in fact, most of those businesses would not even be in business, uh, except for the fact that they're a place where people like to gather, then as those people, that's why they walk in the door, but then they buy a cup of coffee, then they buy an India Pale Ale. Um, So even the commons, the spirit of the commons, um, even enters the private, the realm of the private market. Yeah, those wonderful places you can just hang out, and sure, it's a private business, and they're making money, but it's like it is so tied to the community. It exists because it it respects the community and is part of the community, and you come there and meet with your neighbors, and you might have poetry readings or might have some music going on or just sitting there talking, and and everybody feels we are are part owners in this, even though we don't really own the business, we're yeah, owners yeah. of the space. Yeah, and exactly. Like the business is... Then there's all the other public spaces, the libraries, the schoolyards, the playgrounds, and things like that that are really important to them. They're priceless. You know, we could not, no matter how rich we are, you know, create these things for ourselves. And, you know, what, really what fun would it be if <laughs> your kids are playing... You know, probably more playing with playground is go, you know, meet up with other people. And so, I mean, I think the commons just infuses and enriches our lives in so many ways. And unfortunately, for a long time, people lost sight of that. But I'm optimistic now, despite all the problems the commons is facing, that people are beginning to understand just how essentially important this is to not just our economy, not just to our well-being, and our health, but also just our happiness. Yeah, yeah. The uh, you mentioned it, uh, some books and some uh, movies and different things that touch on this issue. And you mentioned, of course, one of my favorite movies. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, and we've yeah, t- yeah. talked about that many times on the show, and this ties back to uh, my question ab- about the banks. And you have this this stark contrast in that movie where you have Mr. Potter, who wants this, like, mega bank that controls everything, and it's all about profit, profit, profit I- at any expense. And then you have George Bailey, who has the community bank, or the, the building and loan, I think they call it. And, yeah. and you had, the idea is sort of put across in that movie that we all kind of own this because you all are taking out loans to so that you can own homes and i'm giving you a loan at a a reasonable price then then the the building and loan exists because of of the money coming in from all of you and and that equity in your homes is yeah. makes you all part owners and and it just it seems so logical and so wow this is how it should work and then you you very clearly see that that mr potter is like you know this bad guy it's all about greed and i see some people now getting that about the world we're in now and that that mr potter represents these big corporate wall street entities 
And uh, yeah. but we have yeah. examples now of the the George Bailey building and loan type of uh, of entities. And I think you mentioned one in the book, a, a sort of community bank. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, community bank. I'm trying to. Hmm. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote the book. I'm not. I can't remember. Can you prompt me on that a little bit? The community bank. And the um, book? I not. think it was just a brief mention, and I think it was in uh, North Dakota. Or oh yes, no, it wasn't a community bank actually. No, that's a very good example. Um, North Dakota, of course, is one of the reddest states in the union in terms, of, at least, of how they vote in presidential elections. But they have a state-owned bank. Uh, it was established in around, right after World War One, when there was a big uh, agricultural depression in the state. It's like the state runs the bank, and uh, many people are crediting the state bank as being one of the major reasons why North Dakota is the only one of the 50 states that has not actually officially been declared in recession. Because this bank um, it's essentially there to loan money to people for ideas and projects that wouldn't otherwise be loaned to. Um, and it you know it just does a lot of functions and you know it's 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 the Tea Party's uh, version of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a state-owned bank. <laughs> However, it, but it's in a very conservative state. There there are no um, crusading mobs out to you know take this bank away. There's no um, there's no referendum to privatize it because the bank works very well for the people of the state. And in fact, I think there's an effort underway right now in Oregon. Uh, to create a state bank there. And one of my colleagues at On the Commons here in Minneapolis um, is um, fired up by the idea of creating a state bank here in Minnesota. If North Dakota has one, we should certainly have one, right? Yes. And so, yeah, so it's a great, it's a, a very, little, very few people know about it. Um, it was just considered kind of a historical footnote until suddenly there was this anomaly of North Dakota um, you know, enduring the the financial crisis a lot better than anybody else, and the state bank had a lot to do with kind of spreading the money around so that the jobs weren't lost and things like that. So that's a great example. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this list of the best books, music, movies, and art that that embodied the commons. You know, and some of the some of the movies I included were Wall-E, uh, Dances with Wolves. Um, you know, It's a Wonderful Life is a great one. There's an old Disney cartoon. Uh, called Motor Mania, yeah. which is actually about goofies in it. And it, it just talks about how uh, people get behind the wheel and suddenly they, uh, you know, uh, terrorize pedestrians and other people on the streets, and therefore the streets become privatized. The private, you know, belong to automobiles rather than belonging to everybody. Chinatown, another Southern California example, is a great movie about who owns the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, the water is such a huge issue out here because yeah. we have uh, way more people living here than the amount of uh, yeah. water that exists could actually uh, sustain. But uh, that's that's kind of another issue, but definitely yeah. ties it's a huge in. Issue, Robert, it's a huge issue around the world. It's probably maybe the most compelling of the commons issues right now. You know, throughout. Latin America, there was a big move to privatize municipal water supplies, and it really led to pitched battles in the streets. And a lot of places in Bolivia particularly, you know, people drove out Bechtel in the large corporations, and, and the water supplies were once again became municipal rather than privatized. Um, here, um, On the Commons has been uh, one of the people... Um, 
sponsoring a, an idea, kind of a, a, an activist campaign, to declare the Great Lakes an international commons. And there's inner city groups and people on Indian reservations and environmental groups all around the Great Lakes, Canada, Ohio, New York State, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Illinois, working on that. So the water is one of, I think, the, the touchstones for where the commons is leading in our era. And you also talk in the book about uh, the Hudson River, and is, is that correct, and the uh, pollution that was there, and you've got... Yes, uh, yes. That's, a, that's actually a great common story. It, um, the book is, uh, I wrote a lot of the book myself, but it's also an anthology featuring the work of a lot of different people. Um, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's involved with an organization called the Waterkeepers. And it's a great story. Um, blue-collar communities on the Hudson River. Um, we're, what we're seeing, and a lot of them, you know, they fished commercially, or at least they fished with their families for fun. And the river is just being polluted by these uh, uh, toxic waste coming in from these industrial facilities. And it was a very tense situation. There were people that were really talking about blowing up <laughs> these pipelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone found there was, was he was a writer for Sports Illustrated, and he lived in one of these communities, and he. And he found that there was an old piece of legislation going back to the 1899 um, that said that it's against the law to pollute navigable waters, which meant rivers and harbors. Um, and in fact, if you turned in a polluter, you actually could get a bounty. So this organization took this old law, which was still in, in effect, and they I bought themselves a boat, and they just went up and down the river documenting pollution from all these different factories, collecting the, collecting the bounties, um, seeing that the, that, the, uh, you know, that the water was then treated before it went in water, and it's become sort of the, that became the origins of an entire movement. And all around, you know, I'm sure in California, throughout the Midwest, and throughout the entire country, there are now river keepers, bay keepers, you know, ocean keepers, stream keepers, you know, just different people taking sort of the commons in their own hands to protect those places. And it's been a huge, huge, um, you know, difference for the environment. And, in fact, Robert Kennedy Jr., I mean, one of the reasons I included in the book, he's just very, very uh, clear when he talks about this is an issue of the commons. You know, it's not just an environmental issue, but it's really... um, And what makes the commons so powerful is that it's not just a bunch of stuff. And it's not just a kind of new way of working. But the commons offers an entirely different worldview. Um, you know, once you kind of realize that there are things that belong to all of us that need to be protected and promoted, then suddenly you view the world completely differently and a new set of things are possible. And also a new set of things just seem ludicrous to you. Well, here's the Robert Kennedy quote. The best measure of how a democracy functions is how it distributes the goods of the land. You know, and that is a pretty good definition of the commons right there. Yeah, yeah. And, and in this case you're mentioning there, there, this is not completely out of the ordinary that there are some laws there that will protect the commons, but they're just not enforced or not known about. Yeah. And if you do the homework, you can find these things and implement them. And uh, this kind of makes me think of another thing, and, and it's that's the the way that, private for-profit corporations are currently chartered under government. They exist primarily to make profit, quite often at the expense of everything else, including the commons. Do we not, as the government, have the right to change the way that incorporation is allowed? So, in other words, to make such toxic tendencies illegal. 
Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, it's a totally ridiculous situation um, where legally the directors of a corporation are bound by law. It's called fiduciary responsibility to make all decisions on the basis of just one single thing, which is the amount of monetary return to the investors. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, you wouldn't at any point else in your life say, I can only make this decision based upon this really narrow set of criteria. But that's the way our economy runs. You know, corporations um, have a very special special privilege, uh, which is what's called limited liability. Uh, if you are invest in a company and that company is accused of wrongdoing or something, you cannot lose any more money than you invested in the company. You're not responsible for what it does. Mm. That says something right there, the sort of lack of responsibility that's at the very core of the design of, of the modern corporation. Uh, but in the beginning, corporations were chartered for very specific purposes, maybe to build a canal, maybe to build a bridge or something like that. They were not designed to be in perpetuity because they were getting this very special favor, and that was seen as a, as a remarkable privilege. Now, corporations really can operate with impunity, and, and, and they're given all the rights of living human beings. And uh, so there's a, there's a movement out there to kind of essentially change the corporate charter. I mean, not drive these corporations out of business, but because of the privilege that they get, the sort of legal immunity that they get for not being responsible for their actions, then there should be some level of accountability that goes with that. Uh, and that is, a, that is a core commons idea. You know, not to say all corporations are bad, and it's not to say, and certainly not all businesses are bad, um, but it's just to say that there needs to be a higher level of responsibility and not just everything being focused singly on making a small amount of people a lot of money. Right. I mean, yeah, many corporations do behave ethically, but many do not, and they can actually say that the way they are set up legally, they're almost like compelled to yeah, behave yeah. in that manner, to behave in a sort of uh, sociopathic manner. And this is kind of uh, talked about in depth in, in the documentary, The Corporation, and that uh, yeah. gets into all of that. So uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, some of the ways you have a, a chapter in the book, uh, 51 mostly simple ways to spark a commons yeah. revolution. If we could go over just some of those basic things that we can all do in our everyday lives to... Promote the the notion of the commons to live the commons to be the commons to to bring it back out of the the memory <laughs> yeah. hole. We are the commons. Um, yeah, the commons. You know, as, I, as I said just a couple of minutes ago, you know, the commons is a worldview. It's a really a, a new, fresh way of looking at the world. And um, and you know, like I said, once you once you understand that that you're in the commons, and suddenly a lot of things have a completely different look than they did before. And and so, but but here's just some of the ways I'm looking for, excuse me, I'm just flipping through my book right here and, <laughs> and trying to find where that particular article is. That, oh, here we are, right here. Okay, yeah. Um, and I just thought, okay, let's give people a list of uh, how to begin to think differently. You know, this is uh, the commons, I, I refer to it as a social movement. It's a very small social movement right now. It's not like the civil rights movement or the anti-war movement or the gay rights movement or even the historical preservation movement. But it, but it's more and more people are being drawn to it. And, uh, and what it really takes is just what the person can do, how the person looks at the world. So the number one thing on my list of 51 simple ways to spark a commons revolution is challenge the prevailing myth that all problems have private individualized solutions. I mean, sometimes we just simply, the solution is all of us putting our heads together. Um, 
And here's a radical idea. Notice how many of life's pleasures exist outside the marketplace. This is not stuff we have to buy and sell. Uh, gardening, fishing, conversation, playing music, playing baseball, playing games, making love, watching sunsets. A lot of the really stuff that, that is important to our lives that really uplifts us is not the stuff we're buying at Walmart. You know, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's the stuff that's coming to us from the commons. Um, you know, there's this pull, a potluck dinner is a great way to kind of create a sense of the commons in your own neighborhood. Um, bartering, that's a great commons thing. Shopping at local businesses, those make a difference. Um, you know, here's a, here's a real emblematic example of what a person for the commons. Pick up litter that is not ours. You know, <laughs> treat the public spaces as if you own them, because in a way, you do. Yeah. I, I have... Uh friends that that do that quite often every time they go hiking they uh, if they see any trash they pick it up yeah. and bring it back out and uh, you know really uh, respect that and uh, recently i went uh hiking in a place uh here in southern california there's uh, there's a river that most people don't even know about it's called the santa margarita river and it's the only untouched river in southern california it's well, not okay. it's not dammed up anywhere but in it's it's a rather small river as as water flow goes uh but it it, it flows year round and it's uh goes through this canyon and I went hiking down there, and, and I was thinking that as I'm hiking down there, even though some of this land may have been privately held, I, this is the commons. This, we all own this. This is a, a thing of beauty that was created by nature. And, you know, I'm just, this is so beautiful, and I'm watching the sunset as I'm going down there and then hiking on my way back. And, you know, that, exactly, that's one of the things you list there. If people would just make a point of doing something like that, yeah. Even a couple times a year, you get that this is something that somebody shouldn't own. This should be available to everybody. I mean, it's like yeah, we all yeah. should own it. Well, and just the idea of sharing the commons with the kids in your life, you know, nieces, nephews, neighbor kids, your own kids or grandkids. Um, you know, that's a great thing about building the commons for the future. Um, you know, it's interesting you should mention rivers because... Uh, you know, the commons is not a new idea. In fact, it, one of the first uh, references to the notion of the commons actually goes back to the Roman times. There's something called the Institutes of Justinian, where it's, it was established in Roman law, which has continued down to our legal system today, that no one can own the surface water uh, of a lake, river, stream, ocean, um, bay, I think I said lake, mm-hmm. uh, that, that that belongs to everybody. And, and in many interpretations, that also means that the shoreline and, and belongs to everybody as well. Um, and, uh, and so that, that's one of the basis of our law that's, you know, that's enshrined right in, right in the American legal system, and, and the commons is right there. So this isn't just something that a bunch of uh, activist malcontents came up with in the last five or six years to try to undo the glories of capitalism. I mean, this has strong roots in human culture, not just in the West, but really throughout the world. It, and when uh, companies, I mean, it's, it's all in our recent memory, is uh, the Gulf disaster with BP. When, when companies want to do that kind of uh, uh, activity that is going to pose a risk to the ecosystem yeah. there, um, is it not proper that we should 
extract certain fees from them because of that danger that they're putting everybody in that, uh, you know, I think some of these uh, <clears throat> far-right uh, privatization deregulation people would say, you know, they shouldn't have to pay taxes on, on, on any of that, that, that uh, an extraction fee because yeah, yeah, of course. Right. No, no, and, and we, it's one of the one of really the. There's a lot of public lands throughout the West um, that we spend more money upkeeping that land than mining companies, um, oil companies, and timber companies actually pay for us. Um, it's a loss for the taxpayer um, that we prepare these lands and get them ready so they can exploit the heck out of them. Um, so yeah, I mean, we just there's, there's a, just a. The commons and common sense <laughs> are very closely related <laughs> concepts, and there's just there's a lot that we could do to get a better return to the public purse from things that are actually ours. And you know, it's certainly true with the offshore offshore drilling. Now, interesting example: we've talked about North Dakota having a state-owned bank, and that's a very Republican state, at least in terms of presidential elections. You know, Texas is probably one of the most Conservative, or I, you know, right wing is probably a better word because I'm not sure there's a lot of conserving that goes on there. But you know, extremely right wing politics there. A very, very, very red state, the home of George W. Bush. Uh, yet they have a uh, a very, very useful, uh, which should be imitated uh, program there, which is that all the oil that um, comes from the rights to the offshore drilling in Texas. You know, Texas doesn't actually have a lot of oceanfront, but still it ends up to considerable revenue. And it's all directed toward the state's public schools and the state's public university system. Uh, Alaska has something as well um, where the state constitution actually says that the state's resources are owned by all the citizens of the state. So the oil revenues from the pumping on the North Slope, uh, a certain percentage of that is actually returned to the citizens of the state on a per capita basis. That means that each man, woman, and child in the state of Alaska gets a certain amount of check that's their share of this revenue that's being uh, that's being created from on the oil revenues. I mean, so if Alaska, Texas, and North Dakota citizens can benefit from um, commons-based <laughs> programs like that, well, then the rest of us should be clamoring for something similar in our own states. Yeah, I think some of these right-wing politicians in those states, uh, if that kind of thing was happening in Minnesota or California, they would say, oh, those crazy socialists. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, they're doing the same thing. Well, you know, one of the probably the best-kept secrets in American politics and in American economics, too, is that by and large, blue states send a lot more of their revenue, send a lot more revenue to Washington, D.C. than they get back. And it's actually, you know, the places that are kind of getting fat on, on government spending are oftentimes the red states, are on, in nearly every case. You know, the Midwest and the coasts uh, often really lose out. And, and partly it's because we just have a lot fewer defense, um, defense installations than, you know, than, than the Sun Belt, you know, and the South do. But, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, so the, the rhetoric of the Tea Party and of the, of the right-wing libertarians doesn't even make any sense, even in the context of our politics today. But the beauty of the commons is that it begins to change the conventional wisdom. It really does offer a different set of values and a, just a different set of practices that you can go about approaching. Because this could be a very depressing time for those of us that really care about the environment, care about social equity, care about the vitality of our communities. And, uh, but, you know, the, you know, the commons can be that game changer that suddenly 
hey, okay, this is a new perspective. And so, you know, it, on the ways of starting a commons revolution, just simply beginning to talk to your friends and neighbors and family and people you meet on the street just about, hey, hey, there's this idea for, called the commons, and do you know that the commons can do this? Or do you know that uh, from the perspective of the commons, this policy is just sheer lunacy? Things like that. You know, the, the, the power of just the conversation that two people have on a street corner or at a coffee shop or, um, you know, over a beer at the tavern. We just you know reintroduce the concepts, uh, spread the meme, help help the meme to to reproduce. And uh, yeah, exactly. The book is all that we share. Speaking today with Jay Wall Jasper, the book all that we share: a field guide to the commons, how to save the economy, the environment, the internet, democracy, our communities, and everything else that belongs to all of us. And uh, the organization is on the commons, and they can go there on thecommons Okay. And uh, you order the book and find out more about the commons. If we have just one more second, I want to point sure. out, this is the, today is the 50th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech. You know, and everyone know, remembers the phrases, ask not what your country can do for you, and the torch has been passed to a new generation. But here's something else that he said in that speech, which is just straight, this is 101% commons. United, there is little we cannot do in a host of cooperative ventures. So, um... So even John F. Kennedy had an inkling of what the power of the commons was. All right. Let, let's leave it at that, and uh, that's a great way to end the show. Again, on thecommons.org, and the book that we're uh, talking about today, All That We Share, A Field Guide to the Commons. Jay Wall Jasper, thanks so much for spending the time with yeah, us. Yeah, thank you. It was really enjoyable to, you know, to swap ideas with you. Okay. Take care. Okay. Take care, Robert. All right, yes, All That We Share, A Field Guide to the Commons. Check that out. Jay Wall Jasper, our guest today, author of that book. And we've got more great programming coming up here on KUCI in Irvine. Matt Kaplan with uh, presenting to you Counterspin and Planetary Radio. I'll remind you once more, the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And I'm Robert Larson saying I'll be talking to you again next week on the Out the Rabbit Hole radio program. All right, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.